As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I talked to my mechanic and he told me not to panic as he pulled my engine out with the wind. He's got to keep it overnight, not just a little frightened cause my car's going under the ridge. You're listening to Classic Car Talk with Paul and Richard. Hello and welcome back. It's Richard here, along with a man who thinks Carpaccio is an Italian body shop. It's Mr. Paul Guinness. Good grief. Now, as you know, we're both mad about classics, so if old cars are your passion too, then uh, you're in the right place. Uh, True enough. Now, Paul, I'm not one to harbour a grudge. Mm. Let me put that another way. I'm definitely one to (laughs) harbour a grudge. And something you said in a previous show about the Hillman Imp has been eating inside my brain like a hungry worm ever since. Really? What's this about? It's that comment that you made Mm. about how you said, while the Hillman Imp was plagued with reliabilities at the start, roots eventually sorted it out. You said something like that. Yeah, which is a good thing. Well, it's that complacency by manufacturers that they showed towards their customers back then. It still incenses me. I mean, they had it too easy, and they showed disdain for the customer, I think. They were even protected by the government. They had all import restrictions. They prevented better products from abroad being sold here at sensible prices. I could feel one of your rants coming on now. Don't you you agree? Well, okay, it's true that import taxes made foreign cars more expensive than perhaps they deserve to be. But let's not forget the British car buyer of the 1950s and 60s. He was a pretty patriotic chap, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, the the fleet buyers were the big buyers. We Mm. had a big... strong company car culture back then didn't Mm, we yeah and i think about 60 percent of all new car sales in the uk were sold as fleet vehicles Mm. that they gave you as part of your job for people to drive as a company supplied vehicle so back in the 60s british cars sold in massive numbers pretty much no matter how bad they were (laughs) paul i mean it didn't matter that much of the foreign competition it was better looking better handling Mm. more reliable better made it was more expensive because it was made more expensive for customers to buy by the government so they didn't buy it Mm -mm. although the tide did turn didn't it i mean do you remember the second half of the 60s we did start to see um japanese cars in britain and and by uh, only a few to start with but by the early 70s it it wasn't that unusual to see uh, private buyers heading to their nearest uh, datsun showroom instead of perhaps just automatically buying another british car yeah well there are good reasons for that i mean let's not forget the effect of the eu here do you remember the eu Mm. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, how did that ever catch up? (laughs) Uh, Called the common market. We don't want anything like that, do we? (laughs) Created a a level playing field. And suddenly the UK manufacturers, with industrial action, mediocre quality control, lack of development, suddenly they had to compete with fairly sophisticated, in many cases, European brands. Mm. and, And they now, with EU, they cost about the same to buy as the UK cars. 
But um, did they care? No, they didn't care. I remember our family garages that were, right in the early days, they were selling Vauxhalls. Mm. They were rusting out almost before we delivered them. And then what became British Leyland, um, when their new cars arrived with us, they were in quite a state. Um, I remember them sometimes going to the paint shop to get them looking like a decent car that a customer might actually accept as brand Mm. new. Yeah, I mean, when we called the manufacturers... They just said uh, arrogantly, oh, that's PDI, that's your responsibility. Yeah, PDI meaning pre-delivery inspection, which, which normally, of course, means a, a polish, a fill it with fuel, and if you're lucky, maybe a bunch of flowers on the passenger seat. That's it, that's yeah. it. That's yeah. what it's supposed to mean, Paul. It's mm. not supposed to mean calling the customer to say there's a bit of a delay, and then we rush off and repaint the wing and set the tappets and set the ignition timing. I mean, the UK car plants that were run from the States, so I mean GM and Ford, They'd got a different attitude. Yeah, they invested in tooling and common platforms and design. They understood all about global working practices. But Mm. as an example, the year that Morris unveiled the Marina, Mm. he got an engine dating back to the 50s, a cart sprung rear axle, a good old lever arms up front. That was an old Moggy Miner in a shell suit. Harsh. <laughs> and in that same year in Italy, they had the Alpha Sud. Well, they did, and and that was a very advanced little car. Absolutely, I had fond memories of the one I owned. Um, but let's not pre- 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 pretend that the Alpha Sud of the seventies, which was uh, exactly trouble free or, or rust free, I mean, every <laughs> every car company had its problems, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there were lots about that. That was a, a nightmare. But yeah, we'll park that for a moment. <laughs> that was probably a bad example. But the real problem, I think, in Britain stemmed from well how after 1945 the government ensured there was no competition for 20 years management couldn't be bothered to spend money giving any new design a a decent test i mean why would you when the poor old british customer they'd take what they were given so we ended up with the buyers of the first so many thousand cars they suffered all the failures that you were talking about i'm not blaming the engineers they were very often brilliant people Mm. they were just simply prevented from doing their jobs i mean the quality levels dropped and that was just at the time when the continental manufacturers and the japanese had raised their game mm. of course big advantage that british leyland had was that uh, huge dealer network oh yeah uh, i mean there was, was a local garage in almost every town wasn't that's right there back that's then. right um well interestingly the population was perhaps loyal not necessarily just to the products but as much to the garage and the people who worked there as well well you put your finger on it i haven't heard a lot of people say that and i think you are absolutely on it there mm. because but what did they do what did they do then bl they'd they'd got all these dealerships and by the time they'd morphed into austin rover they decided they'd closed down half those small dealerships mm. and i'm not into sour grapes i mean they didn't close any of ours down we weren't affected but they closed the small dealerships and they said oh customers can now drive to the next big town to buy one of their cars as if it was some <laughs> honor and of course <laughs> what did that achieve well that it it meant that the Japanese firms, they're doing well at last, they were desperately looking for more dealers to yeah. sell mm. their cars. And we gifted them, or BL did, with a network of dealers with a really loyal customer base. Absolutely perfect for the Japanese. They snapped up all the dealers. Mm, OK, yeah, yeah. I do agree with some of what you say, Rich. Ooh, and, um, makes a change. Well, uh, it always comes as a surprise to me. <laughs> How much sub, 10%? <laughs> 
Oh, anyway, as a postscript to to that, I remember when our dealerships were sold and the mm. new owners, they switched to Toyota. Oh, really? And I, I called in mm. and I said to the service manager, how's it going? He said, I can't believe it. Whereas before, you remember, he said, the customers used to come in for the first service. They've got a list of faults, often several pages. And mm. um, I've seen those lists, Paul. I yeah. remember them. Yeah. I remember a chap coming in with a, a brand new V12 E-Type Roadster and he had seven pages of faults Ooh, with this ouch. car. That was an expensive car. Mm. Anyway, the service manager said to me, now they come in for the first check with a Toyota. They've got no faults at all. Mm. We just change the oil, the filter, check them over, out they go again. You're listening to Classic Car Talk with Paul and Richard. They're legends, but only in their own minds. Welcome back. Now, Paul, it occurred to me the other day that 2021 is a big year for classic car anniversaries. One of the biggest, of course, being the E-Type. That turned 60 back in March. It did, yeah, that's true. And, well, that explains why just about every classic car magazine has uh, so much E-Type coverage at the moment. (laughs) Absolutely. But let's not forget that this year marks another important anniversary for sporting Jags. Mm. We mustn't forget this. 25 years of the XK8 and the supercharged XK8. Now, that is a good call. And I think it still looks great today, don't you? Yeah, I think they've aged really well, mm. unlike yourself, didn't And like a lot of modern classics, they, they offer superb value. Although I have noticed that prices of the best examples, they're on the rise now. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. I've got to say, though, I'd still happily spend my own cash on an XK8. Oh, you'd spend your own money. <laughs> but yeah, so would I. I remember mm. when it launched, I mean, it was a dead ringer for the Aston Martin DB7. Because yep. they both shared the same platform, uh, Jaguar and Aston, both owned by Ford at the time. Mm. The big difference, though, was the the price. The XK8 cost, uh, I think it was under £48,000, £66,000 when it launched. Yeah, still a very upmarket machine, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, for goodness me, yeah. I mean, but the DB7, that Mm. was well over £80,000. Wow. It was $110,000. I mean, Jaguar sports cars, they've always offered great value for the performance and the style, and Mm. the XK8 was no exception. No, exactly. And even those early cars, they were very quick, weren't they? Uh, I mean, Jaguar's new 4-litre V8s, that had 290 bhp, I think. Um, I know the top speed was limited to 155, like a lot of cars. Uh, But 0-60, that that was, what, 6.4 seconds? Ah, okay, trust you to know that. (laughs) It is my job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the Ultimate was the supercharged car, the XKR. And even those earliest cars had um, 370 brakes. 370, yeah. 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 Uh, I knew you'd get me if I was wrong there. Oh, I'd pick you up on that. (laughs) (laughs) And having said that, though, any XK is what I call a real Grand Tourer. I've driven plenty on a long run i think they're just wonderful oh they are that engine that was the new ajv8 wasn't it uh That's it. very impressive and of course vital for the american market where v8s were still the preferred choice yeah you had to have a, a mm. v8 and you know i was going through some archives the other day and i came across 
a customer handover video. Half hour customer handover video. Poor old customer having to listen to that. <laughs> I'd be saying, let me drive it. Um, and they'd have given that to XK8 buyers back in 96. Mm. I've got it. Let's hear a quick clip from it. Congratulations on choosing the world's finest luxury sports car. The new Jaguar XK8 echoes all the grace and power of the great Jaguar sports cars of the past. Yet it's one of the most technically advanced vehicles ever produced and is made in both left and right-hand drive versions. Jaguar have also chosen the XK8 to launch the all-new AJ V8 engine, which will power Jaguars into the next millennium. The aim of this video is to introduce you to some of the more sophisticated features of the Jaguar XK8. It's no substitute for the important occasion when you take delivery of your new Jaguar, where your Jaguar sales specialist will run through all the major controls and systems with you and answer any questions. The Jaguar XK8 is completely different from any of its predecessors, so even if you've owned a Jaguar before, please be prepared to give your time to the handover. You're listening to Classic Car Talk with Paul and Richard. I've already fired them four times, but they still keep showing up. Great to hear mention of that new engine there, Rich. Yeah, although the uh, AJ V8, that wasn't without issues, was it? I no. remember remember very clearly those early cars having Nicosil liners, mm. and the owners were soon reporting problems. I mean, didn't Jags have to uh, replace a load of engines under warranty? Yeah, they did. It was in 1999, I think, that Jaguar finally fitted the V8 with proper iron liners. Yep. Uh, so any example from the 2000 model year onwards, that should be fine. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget, a lot of the early cars are also upgraded. Oh, yeah, they'll be okay by mm. now. I've, I've seen quite a few low mileage xk8s advertised recently for less than seven thousand pounds that's um, ten thousand dollars yeah a couple of immaculate looking examples for not very much more Mm. i mean i think for a really well preserved jaguar sports car that's crazy good value oh it's it's amazing i mean you do see them advertised for even less of course but i've got to say buying a really cheap xk8 is not necessarily the wisest move is it no well not when they're top money mm. is not that much money that's the way mm. to, to buy yeah. them I yeah. mean, well you were considering xk weren't you yeah well yeah a couple of years ago um i ended up buying an old xj6 though because the problem is my garage at home it's very narrow and right. uh, the xk stores uh, of course being a coupe they're very long aren't they <laughs> so you'd have been trapped inside yeah yeah i'd have bought much. you one if i'd known that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, Rich, if you're going to mark the silver anniversary of one British classic, maybe you'll allow me uh, to mention the golden anniversary of another. Oh, all right. Well, I'm always scared when you throw one of these. Golden anniversary, 50 years, so we're going back to 71. 71, yeah, exactly right. And I'm talking, of course, about the debut of uh, the eagerly awaited Morris Marina that you mentioned earlier. Eagerly awaited? (laughs) By whom, exactly? It certainly wasn't eagerly awaited by me, who had to drive one in a van form. Just just getting back to my own rant about quality now, aren't you? Well, the thing is, I think it's all too easy to take the mickey out of the marina. Yeah, it Um, is. And I will. will. (laughs) And you do regularly. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's a bit of a shame, you know. You see, in many ways, a marina was exactly what British Leylands needed at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They needed 1950s technology in the 1970s. <laughs> I'm not absolutely sure you're right on that one, Paul. No, but what it did need was a, a traditional rear-wheel drive saloon that could take on the big sellers of the time, like the Escort and the uh, the Cortina. I mean, since the old BMC days, there'd been a focus with the company on uh, front-wheel drive with the, first the Mini, yeah. then the 1100, and later on, of course, the 1800, the yeah, Land Um But the thing is, 
Not everyone wanted front-wheel drive at the time, and there was still huge demand for basic, uncomplicated engineering. Oh, I'll give you that. I'll mm. give you that. You've got a point. But was the Marina the answer? Was it really? I mean, the old A and B series engines, a modified Moggy Minor suspension, it wasn't a good start, was it? Well, OK, let's not forget, though, British Leyland, it was only created in 1968, and straight away it needed a new car, well, pretty much as soon as possible. Yeah, rushed um, it out. The Marina it was developed in a very short space of time. There we and go. In fairness, it was only ever intended as a, as a stopgap. Yeah. Um, anyway, Rich, have a listen to this. It's a great advert announcing the new Marina. What happens when the best engineers in the world set out to create a beautiful car? You get beauty with brains behind it. You get two different body shapes. A true four-door saloon and a two-door coupe. And they are beautiful. Two different body shapes, each with three power options. A 1.3 litre, 1.8 and 1.8 TC. Two different body shapes, each with three trim options. Deluxe, super deluxe, and TC, and they are all beautiful. When British Leyland set out to create a beautiful car, you get ten cars called the Morris Marina. Beauty with brains behind it. Oh, beauty with brains behind it. That sounds like the title of your last sex tape. <laughs> you can't say that. That's the beauty of this. <laughs> that's the beauty of this show, Paul. Because it's it's recorded. I say what I like, and then Tom will cut it out in the edit. Really? So, do you actually listen to it when it's uh, when it goes out? Oh no, I never listen. To it. <laughs> okay, that's interesting, eh, Tom? <laughs> anyway, now back to the marina, please. So, come on, Rich. It did what it set out to do. It gave Leyland a new model, and let's face it, it sold pretty well. It was almost always in the top five here. And it was improved over the years, uh, finally finishing off, of course, as uh, the Ital for its final few years on sale. Oh, you're not doing yourself any favours throwing <laughs> that one in the Ital. I mean, that was oh, that was a, a minor restyle, really, a set of new badges, Ital. It didn't deserve a new name. Well, OK, maybe not. I'll give you that. But it did keep the old Morris going until the Montego arrived in 1983. Oh, hurrah. And the... <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd be excited. Um, also, the Isle estate, don't forget, that stayed around until 84. That, which, that's not a bad career for something else. That's something that started out as a, a stopgap, what, 13 years earlier. You're clutching at straws, Paul. Well, OK. But BL, they made some big claims about the Isle in 1980, you know. Did you know that according to its uh, TV launch ad, the Ital was faster at overtaking than a um, Mercedes 200 at the time? Oh, so they searched every car that they could find. They plumped on the Mercedes 2000, the slowest of the lot. My lawnmower is faster at overtaking than a Mercedes 200. Well, OK, you may have a point. I can see that... Uh, I can see I'm not going to convince you that the uh, the marina and the Ital were celebrating. Nope. So, OK. I give in. Instead of arguing any more, I'll simply leave you with the Ital ad that I mentioned earlier. I hope you enjoy it. Out from the Ital design studio comes the Morris Ital. It accelerates faster from 0 to 60 than a Saab 900 GLS and overtakes faster than a Mercedes 200. It costs less to buy than an equivalent escort saloon and is styled in Turin by Ital Design. The Morris Ital, styled in Italy, built in Britain. Classic Car Talk is brought to you by We Love Oil. It's the subscription service that dumps two gallons of used motor oil outside your home every Friday. What do you do with it is your business. Subscribe to We Love Oil today. Well, that's it for this week. We're back next week with more classic car news, more people and more chat. 
thanks to the Team Supreme. That's Tom, our producer, Mr. T. And thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate us. And follow us on Facebook at Classic Car Talk. And if you didn't like the show, then it's all Paul's fault. No, it's all Richard's fault. (laughs) So until next week, drive drive safe. safe and see you around. You've been listening to Classic Car Talk with Paul and Richard. Remember what they said about a dark night? That's when to put your headlights on. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.